thing I'm going to do is take off my shoes. I forgot to put my shoes on today, I've got my trainers on, it's not appropriate, I forgot, that's all it is. But I'm going to take them off because I want to feel the floor on my feet. You know, we're told to take off our sandals when we stand on holy ground, right? And do you believe that you're on holy ground? Well, you are. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit is in you, and where you stand is holy ground. That's how it works in the New Covenant. And I'm wearing socks that are red, as you can see. It's nothing to do with Remembrance Sunday, but I want to share a secret with you. Mike may know, you may know this, because you've noticed the German on the socks. And one day you caught it. Oh, no. But look. Because I've been wearing these socks every single Sunday for four years. To preach in. Not, they're not lucky socks, but they're from the town where Martin Luther, the reformer, lived. In Germany, and I think it was—is it was it Wittenberg? And when he was on trial by the Catholic for the Catholic leaders, he was asked to give an account of himself, and he said, "Here I stand; I can do no other." Mike, would you mind saying that in German for us? Here Exactly. <laughs> And so we come to uh, a passage of scripture where here I stand and I can do no other um, because Philippians is on holy ground, isn't it? It's just such a fantastic letter, it's a favour of, of most of us as well. Now let's recap chapter 3, Paul has exhorted the church, we discovered this two weeks ago, um, to press on to claim the prize which is Christ. That's the sole goal of your existence, to press on. He talked of two groups of people, those who follow Christ and those who oppose Christ. And in the end, in chapter 3, verse 21, Christ will transform and is transforming us to be like him. I mean, believe it or not, right? <laughs> he is transforming us to be like him. Come on, Chrissy, put a smile on your face. He's transforming you to be like him. And boy, do we need it. That's why in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul encourages them to stand firm in the Lord. Uh, but now he comes to another in the Lord phrase as he comes to two warring women in the church. This is one of the major reasons why the letter itself was written, was because these two women were at loggerheads with each other. So there was internal tensions and factions between these people. And tensions exist whenever any group of people, however small or large that group of uh, people is, there's always going to be tensions that need to be worked through. And that's why in chapter 2 we have a magnificent, one of the high points of scripture, the hymn to Christ, the hymn to humility. And we could dwell on that for years and still not plummet's depths. But at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that what? that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But the problem with Philippi is it's a proud and arrogant town. It was an entitled town. And it always got what it wanted in their business and their relationships. And it's why the verb, which is translated to agree with, Paul uses that ten times in these four chapters. He's urging in the Lord an agreement. 
Because the gospel makes a difference to how we relate with each other, doesn't it? But Paul is so winsome how he goes about doing it. He doesn't command or berate or complain or compel. And if you remember his letter to Philemon, Paul said to um, Philemon, who owned a slave who'd run away called Onesimus. Paul is writing on behalf of Onesimus. And Paul says to Philemon in his letter, I could compel you, but I want to appeal to you on the basis of love so that you do what you ought to do without compulsion. Philippians chapter, uh, verse 10. Philemon, thank you. Philemon, verse 10. Appeal on the basis of love. This is what Paul is doing. He's always appealing to the better self of others. Which is obviously a good thing. So that their response might be free. Now, one Christian leader, Lawrence Richard, says we all, make it, we all make a huge mistake if in trying to cure, we condemn. In trying to help, we disparage. And so in 4 verse 1 he says, stand firm in the Lord. And in, in 4 verse 2 he tells Syntyche and Euodia, by the way David, brilliant reading of their names, not easy. Um, he tells Syntyche and Euodia to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. The key thing here is in the Lord. Because these two women are held in very high esteem by Paul. He's appealing to their better natures, of course, because they are women of ministry. They have laboured for the gospel with Christ. But for some unknown reason to us, they just don't get on in a personal way. Do you remember in Acts 15? When Paul had a sharp disagreement with Mark, he said, I'm not working with that man, I'm going with Barnabas. And he off, off he went with Barnabas, and God blessed his ministry still. In time, of course, years later, there would be reconciliation between Paul and Mark. Do you remember just in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, verse 2, Paul says, Look out for the dogs, the ones that are coming into the church to destroy the church. He's using strong language to get the point across. Remember Jesus. <laughs> John chapter 6, 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. His confrontations with the Pharisees. He called them children of the devil. The Jewish leaders. Because they couldn't see who he was. And accused him of blasphemy. Very strong language. So disagreements happen, and I don't know if you were, I know some of you were present last week at the B1 sermon, I hope that you were able to go to it and I didn't see you, or that you have caught up with it uh, online, because the guy who was preaching was an invited speaker called Paul Barker, and he talked about two pressures that the church always faces throughout history. One is from the outside, in, and the other one is from the inside in. It doesn't work itself out. And every time the church faced pressure from the outside, what happened to the church? Got stronger. And every time we read through the book of Acts, throughout all of its persecution and its advancement and, its, and the way Paul is conducting his ministry, there are key phrases, seven or eight of them, that tells us that the gospel advanced, that the word of God was unstoppable. And, and so on. And these, these are deliberate uh, pointers in the book of Acts to show this. 
And whenever there was pressure from without, the church grew, the church strengthened. And so Paul said last week that when there's pressure from within, history shows us it never ends well for the church. Never ends well for the church. So Paul can say, look, you two ladies, you two godly ladies, you may have a disagreement, but I want you to agree in the law. Now that doesn't mean a bland conformity to the same way of thinking about things at all. No, that's called communism. That's not called biblical Christianity. So Paul says you need to agree in the law. Paul Barker, the guy who preached from last week, said, how will you respond when you've been treated unfairly? And we've all had those moments when we've had accusations and allegations and something in us has triggered and we've popped. How will you respond when you have been treated unfairly? Because agreement in the law does not mean a bland, unified alignment of thought about everything. It cannot mean that. But it does mean that differences in the context of Philippians and in our context, that differences have to be subsumed under the Lordship of Christ because Jesus is still King and his Gospel is still true. Amen. At no point does Paul say that either of these women are wrong. And yet, the serious question for us remains, how will you respond when you're treated unfairly? I'm going to call on my glamorous assistant now to get me the... Um, that's what you called yourself earlier on. It's okay to say that, isn't it? How will you respond when you're treated unfairly? It, yeah, it is. Yeah. I made it easier. Okay. Just here. Right. Right. What do you see? Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Right. What do you see there, Judge? Okay. Right. Okay. Excuse me a moment. Oh, I just. This could be like the stains and the strains of our relationships. For Christians, when we focus on the black dot, we spend our energy thinking about it or them, rather than all this glorious space of God's great grace. We see these very easily and maybe afford them too much disproportionate uh, attention. Maybe we do that. But Paul is not going to focus on the black dot in the context of these two women. That's the point of this. 
He's not going to let conflict rule between these two godly women. So when black dots appear in our lives, and they will, and they do, and they have, and they are, what is Paul's response to this? Does he go, oh, or there, there, there? No. He says something that we know. But you might go, oh, it's just religious nonsense, Richard. But he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, because we're dim, we are dim. He has to repeat it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. But do we rejoice, church? Really? Every time? Guilty! We don't. And this is why we need help from the legendary Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, to rejoice always does not mean only when you are able to rejoice, but when it is also denied you. When outward difficulties oppress you and weigh on your mind. And this is a challenge, right? Or is it just me? Is it you as well? Do I get an amen? <laughs> Here's another thought to ponder from a Catholic bishop. One of the obstacles to joy is that we convince ourselves that we are finally in charge of our lives, that it is up to us to know everything, to control everything. Well, we're not, we can't, and we won't. We are not in control of our lives. And the more we grasp at that power that Jesus himself denied in the wilderness, God-like power, the more we grasp at that, the more trouble comes after us. So the fact is that our redemption in Christ is the cause for joy. And I've just remembered, I've got to, I want to say this now. I've said it here before, I think. We do not praise God because he has caused us to have victory but because to praise God is to have victory. We don't just thank God for all the good stuff. We thank God because he's God. Right? So therefore, we know that we are redeemed and therefore we rejoice and that's enough. Verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And reasonableness doesn't mean docility. It doesn't mean bland conformity at all. Not one bit. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I wonder at this point if Paul had forgotten about his massively serious altercation with Mark. Or the way that he's talking about the dogs in chapter 3. Wasn't very reasonable then, was he? But rather, at this point in verse 5, we have this interchange where Paul says, Be gentle in conduct, but don't be anxious about anything. Have I always been gentle in conduct? No. Have I been anxious about most things? Yes. And you can tick that box too as well, right? 
We're in the same boat here. And that's why our friend John Calvin said that gentleness is moderation of spirit when we are not easily moved by injuries. When we are not easily upset by adversity, but keep our equanimity. I knew I'd get that. Been panicking about that work. It is moderation of spirit when we are not easily moved by injuries. And he adds that this is how we control ourselves even in the endurance of injuries or inconveniences. This is how we do it. And so the interchange that Paul does, uh, let's just double check the verse in um, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the interchange here um, is no accident because anxiety is a joy robber. <coughs> you know this. You know, psychologists have defined anxiety as a feeling of apprehension and cued by a threat to something that we hold essential. Whatever is essential to us, if there's a threat, anxiety comes in. So, what do we do? How do we respond? How then shall we live? As Francis Schaeffer used to say, how then shall we live? But some people, however, are chronically anxious. They are fearful and nervous, some people are, even when there's no threat. And this is, a, this is where it becomes a problem for people to overcome. But either way, anxiety is not fun at all in the slightest. And we all suffer to some degree with anxiety, there's no doubt about that. But anxiety manifests itself often when we are powerless or when we're losing power. The anxiety rises and so we start to grasp and claim it illegitimately according to the New Testament. But the New Testament answer is found here about what to deal, how to deal with it. Because real prayer, Paul says, with thanksgiving is the antidote. Oh my goodness, I thought I'd have to do a theology degree again and learn Hebrew and Greek. And that's not the antidote. Prayer with thanksgiving. Making your requests known to God, even making your anxiety known to God. He's just, he's just saying, just... Give it to me. Hand it over. Come on. My daughter, my son, hand it over to me. That's what God is saying in our prayer. I've never heard anyone spend time in prayer and come out more anxious and stressed. Have you? Let me think about it. If there is, I've never heard of it or read about it. No one's ever told me. Very interesting, isn't it? So if you substitute the word for request, let your request be made known to God and change it for anxieties. Let your anxieties be made known to God. You just watch and see what God does. Now notice the result in verse 7. Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, in other words, the peace of God which is beyond mere cognition, it's beyond the material functionality of our biological bodies. 
It's beyond emotion and knowledge. The peace of God which, which passes all understanding will do what? Did you read this? Verse 7. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Some of us here get more anxious in our heads. Some of us get more anxious in our hearts. But what's the key here? I hope you know you need to be a Bible detective at this point to notice the subtleties. You need to get your Sherlock Holmes cloak and magnifying glass and notice that Paul says will guard your hearts and your minds. He's talking to the church that the peace of God with pastoral understanding is found in the church. I was expecting a roar then. <laughs> church, Richard. And don't forget, Paul's writing from prison. Ain't no one robbing him of his joy. Oh, no. No, no, no. Ah, but Richard, you don't know what I've been through. Oh, but Richard, if only you knew my background story. Ah, but Richard. It's not quite that simple for me. Oh, but Richard, you're young, you're only 51, you've only got four kids and five grandchildren. What do you know? <coughs> you have to level these charges at the feet of Paul too, right? You could always justify and rationalise it away to keep yourself in the anxious mode. But learn thanksgiving and you learn the secret to the Christian life. And here's the point as we come to communion. The thing that is special about the peace that God gives and the thing that we can never explain to those who've never experienced it is this, that we experience that peace and many of you have done this. We experience that peace before anything changes in our circumstances. That's the gift of God. That's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God. That's his compassion. It is God who calms us as if he's whispering into our hearts. It's all right, my child. It's all right. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. I am your maker and your sustainer. I am with you. Plural. I'm with you. And I will provide. Trust me. And in a way to nurture this presence of God, we find in verses 8 and 9. Now some people might say, you know, those worldly wise that are always down the pub offering their pearls of great marvels and wisdom, that this is escapist fantasy. Well, it's not. They might say this is the coward's way out, but it's not. It's the, it's the way of the warrior in Christ. It's the way of the lion-hearted amongst us. But it is a deep dive into the reality of the only thing that's real, church. The ground of reality itself. God. God. For we are on a mission, and our transformation our becoming like Christ is God's mission to us, to you and to me. And so we are transformed as we ponder the good, the true and the beautiful. The three transcendentals that the church have talked about for 2,000 years. 
the good, the true and the beautiful. This is how we are transformed in the renewing of our minds that Paul talks about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's why Paul says, this is why you must put it into practice. Christianity is not just theory, it's practice. Do it. Do it. Love your enemies. Forgive those who hurt you. Serve without grumbling. Pray for those in positions of power and authority. We do those things. We put it into practice. And as we do, the God of peace, the God of transcendent peace will be with us. Now finally, isn't it true that we sometimes struggle with all of this, church? This is why we're here again. We were here last week, well, at B1. Listen to the sermon that Paul preached. We come every week to hear the word, to worship this God who transforms us. And it's a slow process. But here we are. It's like making a cake and having all the right ingredients. And when you make a cake, I don't make cakes, I like to make main courses. But apparently, if you don't pay attention to the detail of the ingredients in the right order and in the right way, it doesn't end well, does it? No. Often. I didn't mean to look at you, Marilyn, when I said it doesn't end well. I'm sure your cakes are absolutely delicious. But if we don't pay attention to the, this, the, the ingredients of the Christian life, it will not end well for us. Right. So we bring our anxieties to God, verses 6 and 7. We nurture the qualities of the good, the true, and the beautiful, verses 8 and 9. And next week, in the final instalment of Philippians, he got there in the end, we discover the contentment that comes from God when we rely on Him and not our backgrounds. And this is the final lesson that we learn from Philippians and how they generously supported Paul's ministry. It's absolutely astonishing. But verse 9 tells us, we finish now, we discover how these ingredients are to be combined. It says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. It's a good deal, right? That's a fair exchange. It's called relational Christianity. These are the ingredients for a, fight, a vital, joy-filled life. Now, truth that we don't practice is about as useful as a tyre without air, right? We won't get far on either. And we pray, all glory to Jesus Christ. Father, let your word sink, we pray. Continue your transforming work in us and glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.